Cool, thank you so much. Um, yeah, please do grab a red Bible. Uh, we're going to be looking at Acts chapter 6 um, in a moment. But I, I don't know how uh, you're feeling personally about the election result. I don't know whether anybody's actually elated, whether anyone feels like they, they won. Um, but there's something I heard this week that did really cheer my heart. And uh, I, I had a meeting with uh, two reps from the Gideons here this week. And um, I heard a, the, the testimony of a guy called Andy. Um, and he wrote this. In August 2006, while I was in prison, I decided to take my own life. My situation had become so hopeless, I had lost the will to live. I sat in my cell, waiting for the day shift to change over to their nighttime colleagues. It would be then that I would put the noose around my neck, fix it up at the window, and let myself hang to death. No more pain, no more shame. That's what I thought. Relief from the awful situation I was in, serving a life sentence for murder, the result of a stupid drunken argument. At that moment, a quiet voice spoke to me. Just read that Bible. On the shelf sat a copy of the New Testament and Psalms placed by the Gideons, which until then had just been an object on the shelf. My mind answered immediately, what good is that going to do me? Again, the voice replied, just read that Bible. I opened the book at the beginning, Matthew's Gospel, and started to read. It was just a list of names, but something was stirring inside of me. And then at Luke's Gospel, it happened. The parable of the lost son. During this parable, the tears started to flow. My hopelessness disappeared. The wretchedness I had suffered went as well. And most of all, the idea that I was unworthy of forgiveness was taken from me. The angry, frightened, desperate person I had become ceased to exist there and then. I was found indeed. I wept openly with joy. Suddenly I had hope. I wanted to live. Come Sunday in the prison chapel, I went, went to the front and gave my life to Jesus. If no Bible had been in that prison cell, I would be in hell right now. Instead, I'm living my life in the joy of the Lord. I'm still in prison, but my life has new meaning and new purpose as I live to serve my Saviour, the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, I don't know whether our new government will manage to do anything amazing in the coming years. I, I do hope that they do. But this is what God is doing in the world. This is what God is at work doing. And these are the stories that politicians can only dream of writing. And as we continue today in our series in the book of Acts, it's going to remind us of something that sounds very strange the first time you hear it. And it's this. If you really want to change the world, you've got to be part of a local church. If you really want to change the world, you've got to be part of a local church. And not just any church, but a church that understands its calling. Because it's in and through churches that are true to their calling that this kind of powerful transformation happens again and again and again. So we're going to look uh, in a little bit more detail at, at the early church who was true um, to its calling. It's in Acts chapter 6, page 1098 in the Red Bibles. Page 1098. If you don't have a, a Bible, just pop your hands up and a, a steward will bring one to you. And it's Acts chapter 6, beginning at verse 1. In those days when the number of disciples was increasing, the Grecian Jews among them complained against the Hebraic Jews because their widows were being overlooked in the daily distribution of food. So the twelve gathered all the disciples together and said, It would not be right for us to neglect the ministry of the word of God in order to wait on tables. Brothers, choose seven men from among you who are known to be full of the spirit and wisdom. We will turn this responsibility over to them and will give our attention to prayer and the ministry of the word. This proposal pleased the whole group. They chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit. Also Philip, Prochorus, Nicanor, Timon, Parmenas and Nicholas from Antioch, a convert to Judaism. They presented these men to the apostles who prayed and laid their hands on them. So the word of God spread. 
the number of disciples in Jerusalem increased rapidly, and a large number of priests became obedient to the faith. Now Stephen, a man full of God's grace and power, did great wonders and miraculous signs among the people. Opposition arose, however, from members of the synagogue of the freedmen, as it was called, Jews of Cyrene and Alexandria, as well as the provinces of Cilicia and Asia. These men began to argue with Stephen, but they could not stand up against his wisdom or the spirit by whom he spoke. Then they secretly persuaded some men to say, We have heard Stephen speak words of blasphemy against Moses and against God. So they stirred up the people and the elders and the teachers of the law. They seized Stephen and brought him before the Sanhedrin. They produced false witnesses who testified, This fellow never stopped speaking against this holy place and against the law. For we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and change the customs Moses handed down to us. All who were sitting in the Sanhedrin looked intently at Stephen, and they saw that his face was like the face of an angel. This is God's word. Well, the book of Acts tells us this remarkable story of the early church. And chapter 6 tells us that yet again, the church was growing. You see in verse 1, the number of disciples was increasing. More and more people were discovering the life-changing power of Jesus Christ for themselves. In fact, this is one of no less than 10 growth reports that you find throughout the book of Acts. So according to the Bible, it is not unspiritual to care about numbers or to carefully monitor church growth or to ask ourselves hard questions if a church isn't growing. Now, the growth um, here can't simply be dismissed as the initial buzz of a new movement or a honeymoon period because they were actually way past the honeymoon period. Um, having, they'd already faced some serious challenges. So externally, the reality of persecution had already begun. Back in chapter 4, the apostles got their first taste of imprisonment for their beliefs. And then internally, in chapter 5, lies and hypocrisy were threatening to compromise the church's integrity and witness. They were having to deal with those kind of problems internally. But despite these challenges, this magnetic new community continued to grow. If you remember from chapter 2, it had some distinguishing features. So they were devoted to God's word, and they were devoted to prayer. They were devoted to the Lord's Supper and everything it stands for, which we're going to be celebrating later. They were radically generous. Um, chapter 4 says there were no needy people among them. Radically generous and joyful. Joyful. The good news of Jesus Christ had filled their hearts with love for God, and they were not ashamed to express that love just like Luke did, actually, when he was leading us in prayer. And do notice how it keeps describing them as disciples. That's the word. So they were not simply Sunday churchgoers. They were fully committed followers of Christ. In the words of our annual vision that you can see on these banners, they were all in, loving God and loving others in sacrificial ways. This was the community that was having such an impact. But in chapter 6, they hit this new problem. Verse 1, the Grecian Jews among them complained against the Hebraic Jews because their widows were being overlooked in the daily distribution of food. What's that about? Well, at that time, the most vulnerable people in society were widows and orphans. That's sometimes how the, uh, the Bible summarizes the, the, the most vulnerable poor people, widows and orphans. And because the church here was serious about caring for the poor, it, they took special care to make sure that widows were provided for. However, within that um, program, favoritism had started to creep in, with those from a Palestinian background being given preferential treatment to those with a Greek background. So they have to come up um, with a solution. Now, as, as we heard, the solution was not for the leaders, the 12 apostles, to sort it out themselves. 
So in verse 2, they say, it would not be right for us to neglect the ministry of the word of God in order to wait on tables. And then uh, the New Living Translation says, um, we apostles should spend our time teaching the word of God, not running a food program. But that's not to say that that kind of work was beneath them. Certainly not. Now, any follower of the servant king knows that we're called to imitate him. We're called to, to stoop as, as low as is needed to serve anyone. Nothing is beneath a follower of the servant king. It's just that this wasn't the solution. Um, instead, what they do is identify seven other people who could run the food program. Now, so far, so far this is a very elementary management consultancy, isn't it? But here's where it starts to get interesting. Um, did you notice what kind of administrators the early church were looking for? So they don't just say, oh, we'll go out and find the most experienced managers among us and leave them to sort it out. No, instead what they say is verse 3. Choose seven men who are known to be full of the spirit and wisdom. That's what they're looking for, very specifically. First, they must be full of the spirit. So for the early church, character comes first, not experience. Character um, comes first rather than experience when it comes to entrusting people with responsibility. They needed to be Christ-like, full of the spirit of Christ, loving God and neighbor, exemplifying the core values of the church. Second, they must be full of wisdom. And presumably that includes relational wisdom, knowing how to relate to people well, practical wisdom, knowing how to best handle the challenges and the opportunities, and godly wisdom, how to keep God's priorities front and center throughout the project. And then third, they must be known to be full of the spirit and, and wisdom. That's what it says. They need to have a reputation for this. So it's not just that one person thinks they are. It's that this is the considered conclusion of everyone who knows them. This is what the early church looked for in its administrators and more generally um, for people who they were going to entrust with responsibility. For them, those things were the essentials. The other things were the desirables. And there's plenty um, for us to learn from, from all of this as well. Uh, so here are some of the lessons. First of all, food banks are not a modern invention. Food banks are not a modern invention. The early church had a food bank, and this was it. Um, second, character comes first when you're entrusting people with responsibility. Character comes first. So in this example, the food bank was run by people who were full of the Holy Spirit and wisdom. That's what they needed then, and that's what they would say we need now. And by God's grace, that's what we've got. I know the food, uh, those who manage the food bank, and they're just like that. They've got just that kind of character. But we do need to make sure that we keep these things front and center on the job spec. Um, another thing we learn is, is three simple but important marks of great administrators. And I think these are worth, worth knowing, and they apply to all of us. Um, number one, you can rely on them. You can rely on them. So uh, verse 3, the apostles needed reliable people who they could entrust with this responsibility and just then leave it with them. Uh, most people in leadership know that there's a huge difference um, between uh, working with a reliable person who you can trust to do the job and to do it well and with someone who is not reliable, who you have to keep checking up on and keep maybe not, not making the standard. And of course, it's a huge relief when you, when you know you can trust someone where you can just hand something over and you know it's going to be done well. Um, you can rely on them. Second, they enable leaders to protect their priorities. They enable leaders to protect their priorities. Um, verse 4, um, you do that so that we can give our attention to prayer and the ministry of the word. The apostles needed to be able to give their undivided attention to what God had called them to do, to protect their priorities. Now, of course, if they'd appointed bad administrators, um, they would have been constantly interrupting them, distracting the apostles from their priorities. 
but they turned out to be good administrators who would enable the church to pursue a whole range of really worthy goals, a whole range of things that the church wanted to do, but also protecting the leaders' priorities, enable them to, them to, focusing on, to focus on what they needed to. So protecting leaders' priorities. And then thirdly, they add value in everything they do. They add value in everything they do. I definitely know this um, from my experience of working with administrators. I've got the joy of working with some very gifted ones on the staff here. And I can tell you that it's just it's, it's a dream to work with them because uh, they, they, they contribute great insights and great ideas along the way. They always add value in the process. Um, and uh, I, I think as well, well as knowing that from experience, you see it in verse 7 as well. Do you see the result there? The, the number of disciples increased rapidly. We don't know exactly what the seven did, but whatever it was, their labors accelerated the growth of the church. They added value. Um, so for anyone who works in that kind of role, obviously let that encourage and inspire you. But of course, it's not specific remotely, is it? To be someone that other people can rely on, to help leaders protect their priorities, and to add value in everything um, that we do. That's a great thing for all of us to aspire to for ourselves and also to pray, um, to pray about for others, including for our politicians. Wouldn't it be wonderful if, if all of our politicians, whether they're in the government or not, had those characteristics? Um, but also, for anyone who works with good administrators, make sure you honour them. Make sure you honour them just as the book of Acts does. So it names them, and it publicly celebrates by recording it in this book, the impact that they had. And then fourth, and, and the obvious application to church leaders, um, according to Acts 6, the top priorities of church leaders need to be ministry of the word and prayer. Ministry of the word and prayer. And um, so a question church leaders need to be regularly asked, especially by our lovely wardens, um, Rachel and Steve, is are you getting the time you need to protect these priorities? Do you actually have the time so that you can do that? Um, because if we don't, and our time is spread too thin, well, the whole church is going to lose out. The church isn't going to grow like this well-organized early church did. So please pray that for us and also for the pastoral staff more generally. And I, I just want to say there's, there's a great, uh, at least one great example of this um, in, in the staff team. Lauren, Kat, and Haley. they regularly carve out time during their week to pray for the children and the young families of this church. So if you fall into that category, they're regularly praying for you. And I know they do it in a really disciplined and devoted way. But none of this is an end in itself. It's all serving a greater purpose. And we see that purpose in verse 7. See what it is? So the word of God spread. The word of God spread. That's the end result. The number of disciples in Jerusalem increased rapidly, and a large number of priests even became obedient to the faith. That's what it's all about. That's what it's all in the service of. The good news of Jesus Christ reaching more and more people as rapidly as possible to the glory of God. That's the vision of an effective church that is true to its calling. And when the church is, when it's devoted to God's word and prayer and praise and radical generosity, when the leaders are doing what they're supposed to be doing, when, the, when great administrators are doing what they've been gifted to do, then spiritual breakthroughs happen. Let me say that again. Spiritual breakthroughs happen when that's going on. See, it's really, really interesting what brings spiritual breakthrough in the book of Acts. I don't know if you've ever read the, read the book and, and picked up on those points. Um, one of them is devotion to prayer. That's something you see throughout the book. The church was devoted to prayer. And on the back of that, massive breakthroughs happen. Um, another one is forgiveness. Forgiveness brings spiritual breakthrough. We're going to see that next week. But then thirdly, and we see it here today... Great administration leads to spiritual breakthrough. I don't know how many times you've heard that, but this is what it's saying. Great administration leads to spiritual breakthrough. 
And so that's something we need to take seriously as a church. And notice that in this case, it leads to this really significant breakthrough with a new group of people, a group of people who hadn't previously um, really been um, receiving the gospel. It says, following this, a large number of Jewish priests became obedient to the faith. See, for some reason, up to that point, the, re- the Jewish leaders had been particularly resistant to the gospel. Very few of them had become Christians. But now, on the back of this, amazing breakthrough happens. And the more St. Mark's is true to its calling, the more we take God's word seriously, including these lessons today, well, the more we might reasonably expect to see breakthrough with groups of people who we've had so far had little success with bringing the gospel to. But at the same time, I've been really encouraged um, over the past few weeks hearing of members in the church who are really seeking after this. So I've heard of people fasting for spiritual breakthrough um, in their sports teams. I've heard of people fasting um, for family members and suddenly unexpected conversations opening up. I've heard of people daring to offer prayer to people they've only just met. I've heard of people sharing their faith from their hospital bed and reaching out to very lonely people who they, they wouldn't have otherwise come into contact with unless they'd have ended up in hospital. When I hear stories like that, that's starting to sound like the early church who had such an impact on their generation, who saw these kind of spiritual breakthroughs. Well, the second half of the chapter focuses in specifically on this man, Stephen. We're going to hear more about him next week, but I just want to make two brief observations on what it says in chapter 6. First of all, um, notice what it says in verse 5 about him. It says, he was full of faith. Full of faith. And then uh, in verse 8, he also had a ministry that included the miraculous. Now, every Christian has faith in Jesus. And that, that phrase um, that Luke uses there um, does not mean that there are two classes of Christians. Certainly not. But when the Bible describes people in this way, it's talking about people who have deep and unembarrassed confidence in the power of Jesus. Deep, unembarrassed confidence in the power of Jesus. And as a result, they pray very bold prayers And my understanding of this is that it's especially very bold prayers with people who are not yet Christians. That's the the pattern I think I see there. He was full of of faith, faith, prayed bold prayers, and saw God do great things through it. Um, Second, he was fearless. He was fearless. And fearless in the face of opposition. So you look down at verses 11 to 14. They tell us um, he encountered all sorts of opposition. some, Some of it was accusations deliberately made up. Um, Other accusations entirely ignored the positive content of his beliefs, solely focused on what he was against, and greatly distorted that in the process. Maybe that sounds familiar. But if you've been on the end of that kind of misrepresentation, well, it's, uh, it's frustrating and it's unfair, but also you're in good company. You're in the company of Stephen and Jesus before him. And at the same time, you can expect God to help you in remarkable ways, just as he helped Stephen. Notice in verse 10, God gave him wisdom that no one could stand up to, and they had to concoct really, really distorted story in order to to, to get him a second hearing, to accuse him a second time. God gave him wisdom that no one could stand up to, and that's a general promise that Jesus makes to his followers in times of persecution. You'll find it in Luke chapter 12 and a number of other places. The promise of wisdom fulfilled. And then verse 15 at the moment when, when the opposition to Stephen reaches its absolute peak, God's presence with him is manifested in a very special way. It says everyone looked intently at him and he had the face like the face of an angel. He knew God was with him even when the fire was at its fiercest. 
So as I close, whatever our feelings may be about the election, today God would have us remember that the real power to change the world is not in the hands of politicians, but in the hands of the local church. The word of God is the most powerful force on this planet, and it continues to advance through local churches all over the world who are true to their calling. See, this matters as we think about politics. It also matters as we think about the recent tragedies in Manchester and London. You see, even when it comes to terrorism and the tragedy that it leaves in its wake, the word of God reminds us that even the power of terrorists, random though it is, is limited. Because Jesus said, do not fear those who can kill the body, but after that can do no more. Don't fear them. Because for anyone who loves the Lord Jesus, death has lost its sting. Whenever our time comes, and it will come, if we believe in Jesus, if we take refuge in him, Death has become the gateway to glory. That's why Stephen wasn't afraid to testify about Jesus, even though he knew it would probably send him to his death. That's why the early church was so joyful and generous and liberated and uninterested in all of the things that this world runs after, all of its acceptable middle-class goals and all of those kind of things. It just wasn't interested because it knew that what they had in Jesus was so much more valuable. They were all in for Jesus because he was all in for them. And I hope what they knew, you also know. I hope today you know that the Son of God has loved you and he's laid down his life for you. I hope you know that the Son of God died to bring you forgiveness and to bring you home to God, just like Andy discovered to his amazement in that prison cell. I hope that you know that through Jesus' sacrifice, he has rescued you from eternal poverty to make you a spiritual billionaire. And whatever your experience may be now, and it might be hard, the best, God's best, is yet to come. And while we wait, he calls us to be fully committed to his purposes here on earth, to love him with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength, to love our neighbor, to get the good news out to more and more people, to be all in for him, because he was all in for us. And we're going to celebrate the perfect expression of how Jesus was all in for us now as we come to Holy Communion. And I just want to say, if you know it's time for you, if maybe you've been looking into Christianity for a while, if you know it's, it's now time, there's no more waiting to turn your back on a life without God and to receive everything that Jesus offers you. I just want to encourage you to come forward and take communion with everyone else, to receive the body and the blood of Christ that says, yes, this is the saviour I need. And would you like to stand? The Lord is here. His spirit is with us. Lift up your hearts. Let us give thanks to the Lord our God. It is right to praise you, Father, Lord of all creation. In your love you made us for yourself. When we turned away you did not reject us, but came to meet us in your Son. You embraced us as your children and welcomed us to sit and eat with you. In Christ you shared our life that we might live in him and he in us. He opened his arms of love upon the cross and made for all the perfect sacrifice for sin. 
On the night he was betrayed, at supper with his friends, he took bread and he gave you thanks. He broke it and he gave it to them, saying, Take, eat, this is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Father, we do this in remembrance of him. His body is the bread of life. At the end of supper, taking the cup of wine, he gave you thanks and said, Drink this, all of you. This is my blood of the new covenant, which is shed for you for the forgiveness of sins. Do this in remembrance of me. Father, we do this in remembrance of him. His blood is shed for all. As we proclaim his death and celebrate his rising in glory, send your Holy Spirit that this bread and this wine may be to us the body and blood of your dear Son. As we eat and drink these holy gifts, make us one in Christ, our risen Lord. With your whole church throughout the world, we offer you this sacrifice of praise and lift our voice to join the eternal song of heaven. Holy, holy, holy Lord, God of power and might, heaven and earth are full of your glory. Hosanna in the highest. Please take a seat. We break this bread to share in the body of Christ. Though we are many, we are one body because we all share in one bread. So draw near with faith, receive the body of our Lord Jesus Christ, which he gave for you, and his blood, which he shed for you. Eat and drink in remembrance that Christ died for you and feed on him in your hearts by faith with thanksgiving. And do please come up as the stewards direct.